Hello, Dawn here. We hope that you are having an amazing summer so far. We're having a little break ourselves this summer, and we're also working on a bunch of new episodes just for you. In the meantime, we wanted to share a wonderful episode that was originally published earlier this year. We hope that it inspires you to reach new heights and take on new challenges. Enjoy. Before the summit, there was a section, the blue ice section. I never climbed on ice before, so I mm-hmm. didn't know what to do. That was when I had to learn. I had a full-blown panic attack, kept slipping off the ice. Mm. Almost, like I swung off the wall, almost fell into a crevasse. It was horrible. I felt like this is the moment I'm probably going to die. Mm. I had a full-blown panic attack. I haven't had one in like, I mean, I had several on K2, but before then I hadn't had my panic attacks for 10 years. I just had to breathe, center myself, and then I continued. On the summit, I have to say it was relief. I couldn't believe that the moment I was waiting for had happened. I summited. I made history for the Arab region. This is the metal set. Hi, this is Dawn, an ultra cyclist and sports PR specialist. And I'm Afshan, an endurance athlete and journalist. And we're on a quest to bring you stories of tenacity, courage, and metal. From athletes in the Middle East and beyond. July 22nd, 2022. On this day, our guest Nelly Attar became the first Arab woman to summit K2. Why is that historic? Not only is this the world's second highest peak after Mount Everest, but is also one of the most dangerous mountains to climb. With its peak 8,611 meters high, located in the Karakoram Range in Pakistan, this is famously known as the Savage Mountain. It was a pledge that the 33-year-old mountaineer took to honor her late father, who was responsible for sparking that spirit of the outdoors and adventure in her. Despite all of the facts and figures on the mountain's challenging terrain, in some of the most unforgiving conditions and weather on the planet, there was no wavering from this goal. In fact, Nelly tells us that she manifested and visualized her ascent down to 18. How she'd climb, what she'd do when she got to the top, the fireball outfit that she'd wear, and of course, wanting to raise the flag of Lebanon high. We go from the ground up to the summit with Nelly in this episode as she narrates her days adopting a tunnel vision as she prepared for this big push the risk assessment that went into it, and turning to faith in the face of fear. Nelly has also seen and experienced the toll such expeditions take on the environment and tells us what mountaineers can do to reduce the impact when they take on such challenges. This was a chat filled with lessons and laughter, and we hope you enjoy it. Nelly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, I think you're on a very short stint in Dubai, so we've caught you at a really, really good time. And, you know, I we I remember, or Don and I, we remember that when we were setting up the Metal Set podcast in the early days of 2022, we saw that you were in, you know, you were progressing towards summiting K2. Uh, and I think this was back in June, right? And then you did it and you became the first Arab woman to do so, right? Yeah, we were super excited. We were like, we need to get her on the podcast. (laughs) And now you're here, which is amazing. Thank you for having me, ladies. No, we're so excited. So K2, I was just mentioning, I'm a bit obsessive about mountaineering content. It's just not the second highest mountain on earth after Mount Everest. It's perhaps the hardest and most dangerous to climb. It's been called Savage Mountain, has that nickname amongst other nicknames for K2. We're looking back at your achievement and, you know, which is amazing. And we're going to get into all the details about that. You have said something in the past that it honors your late father. Did he play a part in inspiring you to to get outdoors and, and start hiking and start climbing? Of course. When I was a kid, we would go on family trips to the desert we would go hiking I mean very casual short hikes but I remember these moments and he would like to just inform me about the ecosystem he loved nature and he loved being outdoors and he really liked sports recreational sports um, but just seeing him doing these things it inspired me and uh, yeah and it normalized being active Um, Mm. and then my parents both my parents you know made an effort 
to keep us active in school because it wasn't really easy at the time in Saudi to find a lot of uh, sports activities for children. So my parents would always, you know, put an extra effort to make sure that we were active. I played basketball. I used to swim when it was possible. Um, they encouraged my dancing. So, of course, both my parents played a big role and my dad took me on my first climb. So he was the reason why I started to love this sport. He took me on my first climb, which was in Mount Kenya. And then you started your journey. I mean, from there, you started your journey into well-being. You worked as a psychologist and a leadership coach. And then you became a pioneer of sorts in Saudi when you started your own dance studio called Move. What made you take that leap of faith? It just felt right. Okay. It felt right. And it actually didn't really feel like a leap of faith. Or maybe it did. I didn't go from, you know, psychology to move. Mm. There were so many small steps in mm. the process. So when I was working as a therapist, I was teaching dance fitness classes on the side. Right. And that kind of morphed into other fitness classes. And then I became a personal trainer. And so my passion for sports and um, my work in sports started to increase while I was still working in therapy. So it just felt like a natural extension, yeah, Mm -hmm. a progression to funnel my classes into a space. And that's how it started. I didn't really have a plan or a goal. I didn't know where that was going to go. I didn't know what that was going to lead to. Because when we actually started teaching classes from that space that eventually became MOVE, female gym licensing didn't exist in Saudi. Music was not played in public spaces. Dance was not very common. So I didn't know if it was going to work. I didn't know where we were going to go with this. Um, But I followed my heart. I did what I felt was right. Mm -hmm. And I trusted the process. I love that it's kind of, you know, small things lead to big things when you're opening up the dance studio and you're saying you're working and doing many, you know, wearing many different hats at that time. Were you climbing then as well? When did climbing actually start? When did you climb that first climb with your father? I mean, the the first climb with my father was an experience. It Mm -hmm. didn't really start my climbing journey. Uh, That was when I was 17. Mm -hmm. And then... I started to hike a lot when I was in university in Lebanon, especially on my free time. I would actually party at night and then in the morning go hiking. Sometimes I'd pull an all-nighter. Ooh. Yeah, and I'd be the youngest one on the hike, you know? Don't and tell me you were more sprightly than everyone, too, after a night out. I mean, sometimes I'd fall asleep on the rock when everyone's having lunch. But I, just, I don't know. I just I felt like it was right for me to be there. And yeah. I, I needed to be outdoors. So I started to do that a lot in my university years. And then when I was unemployed, I stayed unemployed for about a year or two after I did my master's. I was just doing a lot of volunteer work training kept me sane training mm. gave me purpose and hope and so I started to hike then a lot mm-hmm. but it was, it was only like single day treks I did Kili in 2015 mm. and that was my first like uh, hike that I spent a week in the mountains mm-hmm. and that's what really uh, sparked my interest in doing these like um, longer climbs right. higher climbs and so in 2016, went to the Alps, went to Russia, 2017, Aconcagua, um, just, and it started to build and build and build until I did Everest in 2019 and then. And then K2. Yeah. So you've climbed 16 peaks, is that correct? I think it's over 25. It's over 25 wow. now. And you've also climbed four summits in the Seven Summit Challenge. So I've done Everest, Kilimanjaro, Aconcagua, Elbrus. We did Denali, but we had to turn a round from the last camp because of a storm okay so mm-hmm. i summited four mm-hmm. and i did five are you planning on completing that challenge at some point? yeah why not yeah. i would love to i'd love to climb every mountain if possible <laughs> <laughs> when did you decide you know it was time to push the limits and take on k2 you know it's something i think even the most seasoned mountaineers <laughs> don i'm always pushing limits <laughs> it's not about k2 was it always in your mind that this is going to happen at some stage k2 I, I feel like this is my life's direction i always try to push limits like with move that was the same thing as well mm-hmm. why just teach classes why not try something else why not take the extra step uh so it's not just about k2 and i think this is something that we all should have. We should always try to push our boundaries. We should always try to go beyond what we think is possible. Mm -hmm. How will you know if you don't try? Exactly. No, I agree 100%. I guess going back, though, to when actually you started training for K2, like when was, you know, always pushing your limits, but when did you actually say, okay, I'm going to put planning in motion, have a time frame? Yeah, and and put all my money into K2, basically. So the idea came about when I was ascending from Everest. It was just like a free idea in my mind. 
And I was told that, no, you need a lot more years of climbing and training and experience. The idea started to really linger in my mind uh, November 2021. Mm -hmm. That was almost after a year of my dad passing away. And I had like the hardest year of my life. So I wanted something to look forward to. I wanted this year to be better. Like that after that mark, I wanted that year to be a year of climbing physically, mentally. And so I was like, why not K2? Mm-hmm. Like, what better than K2? And I had that discussion with my dad, may he rest in peace, that I wanted to do K2 one day. So I'm like, you know what? Let me explore this idea. Yeah. And so it was around, I think it was November 1 or 2. I have a video of myself actually talking to myself and just being like, <laughs> I'm going to do it. You know, this is it. I feel good about it. You're your own hype woman. Yeah, of course. You have to be yeah. your own hype person. Yeah. I mean, I got my mom's busing. Little did she yeah. know what I was signing up to. I spoke to my guide, the guy that I wanted to climb K2 with. He was the guide that I climbed Everest with. Mm-hmm. And he gave me his busings. But he was like, first, you have to do Amadablam. It's a peak in Nepal, very similar to K2, mm-hmm. uh, lower altitude. But it kind of gives you an that idea. exposure mm-hmm. and idea of are you, would you be able to do something like K2? And then I found my coach. Like it kind of all aligned within mm. a day or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael McCastle, brilliant, brilliant coach. And so I just felt like, you know what? The universe is opening this up for me. It feels right. I'm going to yeah. go with this feeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just on that as well, because we just spoke before, like November 2021. So earlier that year, NIMS had completed the first, I think, winter ascent of K2. And there was an expedition that happened right after that was you know, turned out to be quite deadly. Did that play into your mind at all? Like in terms of, you know, making the decision? And we're talking about Nirmal Pooja, the famous climber, who's also a part of 14 Peaks on Netflix. Yes, 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 yes. So, but there was a, you know, it was quite a deadly winter season on K2. And it was, I think, the first season. It was the... It was the first point the mountain was open after COVID. COVID, yeah. And so did, did that factor into your mind at all? Or do you kind of, you know, for me... Particularly, I kind of tend to block out any kind of negative noise, you know, around if I'm doing a race or something like that. I'm like, I don't want to hear it. You know, I take the lessons from whatever has happened if there is some lessons to be gathered from that. But how did that kind of factor into your planning at all? Or did it at all? Perhaps, you know, now coming to think of it, maybe because there was so much discussion about K2 maybe that's why the idea stayed in my mind mm. maybe that's why when I was thinking I want a big climb I'll go do K2 mm. and um no I, I I mean I like to do a bit of research about what I'm setting myself mm-hmm. up to of course I want to know I want to visualize what I'm you know going to go and through be prepared yeah but K2 was you know is one of those mountains that when you look it up all you see is horrible statistics mm-hmm. one out of four mm. pass away you know one out of four climbers that try to climb k2 die the statistics it's been unkind to women it's not a you know very friendly mountain to women more people have been to outer space than have done k2 you see so many things that scare you off so i actually tried to avoid mm-hmm. looking into research i mean researching the statistics and instead i focused on the route what is mm-hmm. the route that we're going to take what does it look like i did watch a few documentaries mm. but then again it just reminds you of how dangerous it is yeah it's good to know the risks, but also I want to focus on the possibilities. Yeah. If 370 plus people had summited K2 prior to me doing it, why can't I do it? Mm. Exactly. Mm. So yeah. I just, you know, I focus all my energy, my efforts into knowing the tra- trail, the team that I'm going with and preparing myself. Nice. And I guess your coach would also play a big role in that as well, right? Because your coach knows he's training you. You've obviously engaged him for a reason. So he would be helping with that as well, giving you that knowledge rather than having to look at, you know, salacious headlines of, you know, negativity, really. Oh, absolutely. Like with my coach, I felt he climbed with me every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't end when, you know, when I got to K2. Mm. It ended when I came back to sea level and had my Pringles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's when it ended. And, you know, we'd always say like, because, you know, like you have sets and wraps. So this set was K2 times yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> you come back when it's done. Like yeah. it's over when it's done. Yeah. Uh, of course, I mean, the, the mental, like the emotional support, the support with the training. Mm. And I felt like my life was in his hands in a way because I trusted him entirely mm-hmm. with the training process. You know, I told him the areas I wanted to work on, the areas that I felt were weak for me that you know, like the things that I experienced on Everest that I wanted to get stronger in. And he also knows, he trained Colin O'Brady, who mm-hmm. also had done K2 before. So he knew he had some sort of experience on what to do in terms of like preparing me for mm-hmm. the climb. So I, I trusted him with that. And uh, I'm so glad I did. I felt really strong on K2. Amazing. 
Keto is often attempted by mountaineers who have more than a decade of experience climbing such high mountains, right? And and you have to do a minimum of one 8,000 meter mountain before you do that. I'm pretty sure you were blocking all this negativity out of your life, but I'm pretty sure your family and your friends were also looking at this and they were like, oh no, she signed up to something really dangerous. Were you being dissuaded around you as well? And how did you deal with that? How did you deal with, you know, family and friends saying, oh no, you know, maybe you should wait a little longer. Maybe you should like wait a few more years to do this. So with my family, my mom, blessed her, she was very supportive. Mm -hmm. And my mom knows how much I put, she knows how much of an effort I put in to something like this. I'm not just going to jump in and throw myself into something that's super dangerous without preparing myself and knowing the risks. So... Like the funny thing, my mom was actually more relaxed and at ease on K2 than she was on Everest. Oh, interesting. But she's, I live with her, so she sees mm. the kind of effort mm-hmm. and the training I put in, you know, in, in, in the process. My sisters were super worried. My sister avoided having any conversations about K2. Her husband would actually always crack very dark jokes. Uh, so that kind of like, that in the atmosphere. <laughs> were you like avoiding him too then? Yeah, no, but he'd be like, when, when you're in a crevasse, remember me. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to actually print out that shirt. When I'm in a crevasse, I'll remember you. <laughs> yeah, no, my family, they were always supportive. But of course, my sisters are super worried about my safety. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, with them seeing how much I prepared and trained, they got they started to get really excited and they jumped on the wagon. On the climb, they were the ones handling my social media like all the media uh, connections so they were with me on the climb yeah. as well as for my friends of course my friends were supportive some of my friends unfortunately were not as supportive as i was hoping they would be um i trimmed the fat that's mm-hmm. all i could do i just yeah. trimmed the fat with these friends i kept an arm's length yeah it's up to me to allow them to influence my energy exactly yeah and so the ones that didn't really believe in what i was doing the ones that tried to convince me out of what i was doing for whatever reason i was like thank you you know thank you for your uh, feedback you know, I'm just going to stay away. I think when you take on a big challenge in any way, it really crystallizes who's with you, you know, who's with you in life. <laughs> but also what's really important as well, like, you know, kind of things fade away sometimes or things that weren't as important, not friends necessarily, but, you know, like it just kind of really, really focuses you on what needs to happen. Absolutely, Don. especially because your lifestyle changes. Mm. And, mm. you know, I knew this from Everest. I knew I'm like, okay, as soon as I signed up to K2, Nelly, watch you going into tunnel vision again. That's what you, that's what needs to happen for mm-hmm. you to really be in game mode for the climb. And, yeah. you know, the tunnel vision happens over the months. Like you start to trim the fat in every area, yeah. not just socially, but even with work, you focus on what really needs to be done. And so the good friends stayed there and the good, like my good friends understood why I couldn't be out with them, why I would have to cancel on appointments, you know, because I was up at like 3 a.m. training Mm. and like the peak of my training was about 30 hours a week. I didn't really have the capacity to do anything that week. So the people that cared for me the most understood. And of course, like it shows you what's important in life. It shows you where your priorities also lie. Absolutely. The training process so talk us through, you said 30 hours. I was like, I'm doing like 16 hours a week now. And I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Yeah, I can see your face when I said 30 hours. You're like, oh, no. I'm like, okay, maybe I won't go into climbing. <laughs> what was the process like for training? Um, what kind of training did you do? So it's, it was obviously a gradual buildup. It didn't start with 30 hours. It was a gradual buildup. We had to assess where I am. We had to assess my thresholds, my aerobic mm. threshold. And we would do that periodically. And based on that, we'll, you know, we decide on the training intensity. So the training was a lot of endurance. So it was a lot of trail running, running in sand dunes. That was the best. It simulates snow. Mm. Um, running on the beach, because I'm running in sand as well. Mm-hmm. Running in the beach as well. Running, you know, with the water being up to my knees mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. It trains my hip flexors. And I would do that for hours. Uh, I would do that for like two, three hours, tapping into different heart rate zones. So from aerobic to anaerobic, Mm -hmm. that's important as well, because when you're on high altitude, you're oxygen deprived. And so your body is working so much harder. Your heart rate's so much higher. So it's important to tap into these heart rate zones. I would spend hours in the gym as well, training strength, because you need to be strong for long. You Mm -hmm. don't need to just, you know, have endurance. You need to be strong for long with a pack. Mm -hmm. So hours in the gym doing strength, that would be twice or three times a week, full body strength because on k2 there's a lot of scrambling you need to have upper body strength you're on a line you never know what happens if for whatever reason your leg can't support you you have you just have to be fit all 
like overall. Mm-hmm. I would train my grip strength, my core strength, my back strength. It was very dynamic, also uphill. So lots of time on stairs, lots of time hiking, ascent, ascent. I was obsessed with ascent. Like I just needed ascent, ascent, ascent. You like just need to get higher, higher, higher. Yeah. So like a train, an average training session would be sometimes a thousand five hundred meters wow. elevation gain or two thousand meters elevation gain. Running with, or and, walking or with hiding. a pack, no, with a right. fifteen kilogram. Pack. Oh, me, and, I'm like, oh, I'm yeah. just and cycling. Slow. Where were you it's doing slow. these long elevation gain? climbs of yours or where yeah i would do them in ras al-khaimah okay which is why i started to spend a lot more time here it's okay. amazing i mean it's it's accessible right a two-hour yeah. drive and then you have True. amazing ascent so i would spend a lot of time in ras al-khaimah in saudi i'd go to suda which mm. is the highest peak in saudi but mm-hmm. it would have to be a trip i would have to fly to suda okay. where's that where's suda just abha jabal suda is in south abha. south yes yeah. on the borders of yemen mm-hmm. so i would spend a lot of time there amazing mountain range yeah. beautiful it's like a mini kilimanjaro right. very green too down there very green yeah, yeah. and it like the, the weather is amazing all year round right it's not as easy for me to get there though because you would have to fly and mm-hmm. then I, I always want someone to accompany me but yeah i, I mean i i think i climbed suda about seven times last year wow also went to oman also went to nepal spent a bit of time in nepal but yeah i i, I mean a lot of the uphill stuff was happening from um from the region mm. And I have to say, I also spent a lot of time in ice baths, uh, <laughs> training my nervous system for the cold. Yeah. yeah. And I actually didn't realize, or I didn't, yeah, I didn't realize that you can train your body for the cold as much as I do now. Yeah. I did. I was getting better and better at it. I was getting better and better at tolerating the cold. I didn't realize until now, because now when I get into an ice bath, I haven't been training much with mm. the ice bath exposure. I get so much colder. I can't last more than five minutes. I'm like, how was I lasting 20 minutes in mm. an ice bath? So and how often were you doing these? Twice ice a week. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And how long would you be in that ice bath? 10 water? minutes, 15 minutes. Right. And even within my training, the circuit sometimes, this mm-hmm. was when my coach came and visited me. He actually came, visited me from the US. Um, I would immerse myself in an ice bath, get out, do the circuit, come back, get into an ice bath. So that was part of my circuit training and putting my hands in um you know in, in ice while i'm planking putting my feet in ice while i'm doing a wall sit this is just all to train my nervous system so these simulations that you're talking about was this specific to k2 you weren't doing it for everest you weren't no, doing i didn't okay. train like that for everest. okay on everest i had a different coach great coach right. as well but on everest it was mainly legs it was mainly endurance mm. it was very different it was mm. a very different approach to training mm. that was good but it didn't really I mean, I felt strong on Everest. I came back safely feeling super strong. I just felt like there was still a lot more in me that mm-hmm. I didn't tap into. On K2, I felt like I tapped into these areas. And there's still a lot more in me mm-hmm. that I want to tap into. And in terms of risk assessment for K2, what was that process like with your coach or with the expedition that you went with? What is that planning like for you? That was Amadablam, climbing Amadablam. Mm. And I'll... I did Amadablam very early on in the journey. I did it in November before I actually started training with my coach. Okay. So that was, okay, let's see where you are now. Let's see what the baseline is. And that was me throwing myself in the deep end because Amadablam is actually harder than Everest. And how mm. high is that? Um, I should know. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's okay. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> no, it's, it's 6,000 something. <laughs> okay. okay. Very uh, high. Yeah. Very high. <laughs> I mean, 6,000, like, I think 700 meters. Right. Probably. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I found it to be harder than Everest because yep. it was a lot more technical. Right. And it's mixed snow, ice, rock. And the rock is what makes it hard because mm. you're in crampons. And so when you start to move in snow, it's great. Even if snow is like up to your knees, it's fine. It's if it's all snow, you can have that rhythm of moving. You can Mm-mm-mm. find, you know, specific pace, momentum. But when it goes from snow to ice to rock, you feel it. You have to keep changing gears. Mm. Um, and that's what exhausts you. And on rock, when... You're in your crampons. You just have to be very careful with rolling rocks down the mountain Mm. because that could injure someone or kill someone. Mm. So Amadablam was me assessing where I am. I did suffer a lot on that mountain. I did find that, okay, I need a lot of work. I need to do so much work. I ended up getting Achilles tendonitis on both my ankles after the climb. And I had to deal with Achilles tendonitis for four months as I was building up to K2. Mm. But yeah, it, it was what helped me become in much better shape for K2. Mm. And then K2, the risk assessment is while we're on the mountain, once we get to base camp, we do some skill training just to see where we are, just to see how comfortable we are. 
Um, what is the skill training? Skill training is moving on. So they, they would have like a little obstacle course, like a little obstacle course set up on the ice fall. Right. This um, is on base camp. On and base h- camp. And how high is base camp? At 5,000 meters. Okay. A bit higher than 5,000 meters. Mm-hmm. So we go into the glacier and then we, I mean, they set up some ropes for us to try using an ascender. That's what you do on the mountain to mm-hmm. just like, in case anything happens, it holds you. Okay. So... You know, we just try to see our technique. We do it with a mitten. We do it with gloves because obviously high up here in a mitten. How how fast and efficient are you? You have to be super efficient in clipping off, clipping on. And they want to make sure that you know how to clip. Um, and just your techniques on the rope. And then also repelling. So we practice that. Everyone's okay? Okay, we're all clear to move up. This episode is supported by Deep Dive Dubai. We know that our listeners love awesome adventures. And take it from us, it doesn't get more awe-inspiring than the world's deepest pool. Measuring a record-breaking 60 meters, Deep Dive Dubai gives both scuba and freedivers the ability to discover an underwater world complete with the latest in dive technology and an abandoned sunken city. For those new to diving, like me, it's the ideal place to get started. And for those experienced to expert divers out there, it's the perfect place to hone your skills with exceptional facilities, expert staff, and state-of-the-art technology. Since it opened in 2021, it has mesmerized visitors and continues to deliver extraordinary experiences seven days a week. For more information and to book your experience, visit deepdivedubai.com. So when did you travel to Pakistan for this? How long were you there? Like how you know, because I know some people spend quite a long time in these expeditions. It's not like, oh, you go and the next day you climb or the next week. When did you actually travel to, to Pakistan and what was going through your mind when you were there? June 18 and I left Pakistan, I think August 8. So a couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, um, like almost almost two months, a little shy of two months. Um, I was so excited. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's what was weird is that it didn't feel weird. Mm-hmm. What was weird is it felt like it was all falling into place. I was meant to be there at the right time, at the right place. And this is why I knew deep down inside, even when there is no confirmation or guarantee that I'll make it or I'll make it back. But I knew deep down in my heart that this will all work out. Mm-hmm. From the very, very beginning of signing up to it, like from the very beginning of the journey, I knew that there was, I knew that this will work out. You had visualized it to a T. I felt it and I manifested it. it. And then obviously, like closer in time to the climb, I started to visualize what I wanted to look like, what I wanted the summit date to look like. Uh, I was working with a life coach. I've had a life coach for years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, visualization is very important Mm -hmm. in this process. So we would talk about how I feel on a normal day on K2, what it would look like for me to be standing up on a summit. I didn't realize how important that would be until I came back down and I'm like, wow. What I visualized was even... Like what happened in reality was even better than what I visualized. It's amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. I think your intuition is so important, you know, like listening to your intuition and when everything falls into place, it just puts you in a really good mind space for everything. Sure. It gives mm-hmm. you confidence mm-hmm. and it makes you realize that your gut is your compass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your days climbing then. You were at base camp. You managed to finish this obstacle course you were ready to go so what was the first day climbing like and so i'll tell you about base camp because yeah. the journey to base camp is actually quite hard okay it's not like the journey of everest base camp everest mm-hmm. base camp it's a nice gradual hike with tea houses and it's comfortable mm. and relaxed on the way to a k2 base camp it's quite rugged it's rugged terrain mm. we had to hike about 80 kilometers i think roughly 80 kilometers to get to base camp most of us got food poisoning oh, wow. i'm not sure if it was because of the quality of the water there's a lot of contamination on this mountain yeah. or if it's because of the food but from day one i had food poisoning and imagine like how unsettling that was mm. i was like what's going on what's going on with my body how is that gonna you know how is that gonna reflect on me later um beautiful hike uh, very long days we had really long days and then we get to base camp. Once we get to base and camp. how many hours were you hiking every day? Uh, Just... Like seven. Wow, okay. I'm not sure, actually. I don't remember mm. at this point. About seven hours. Um, and then, I mean, there are shorter days, maybe three. Sometimes it's about ten. And then we get to base camp. We rest for a few days. Uh, just to acclimatize because now you're on higher altitude you're about 5,000 meters so we sit spend two three days recover from whatever everyone like from whatever anyone's dealing with and once the weather is cleared and we've done you know our test run we can move up we stayed a couple of days at base camp probably like four or five days Mm -hmm. then we moved up we moved up to advanced base camp that was a, a couple that was a very easy hike 
the first time you're moving up, you really want to take it slow, mm-hmm. just to acclimatize. So there's two ways you can do this. You, you can either climb up and then sleep low, like come back and right. sleep that, like at a lower altitude, or you can gradually build up elevation gain, mm-hmm. talking about like two, 300 meters elevation gain, and then just sleep on the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so with our rotations, we go up and then you know, come back down and yeah. sleep at lower altitudes. And, you know, parts of it is we do go up and sleep up. So, yeah, after advanced base camp, we go to camp one. Now the move to camp one is where, you know, the dangers lie. It's very exposed. It's very steep. Um, this year we had two people pa- passing away on the way down from camp one. Mm. And that's a pretty long ascent, very steep as well. And we go up to an altitude uh, of around 6,000 something meters Uh, and then from camp one we stay there for about a day we the second day we move up halfway to camp two we come back down we sleep at camp one the third day or the second day we move third day we move up to camp two all the way Mm -hmm. camp two is about 6,750 meters and then same thing we go up on the second day and then come back down we go halfway to camp three and then we come back down Mm to sleep at camp two and we descend all the way Mm -hmm. that's rotation one complete on Everest, we had three rotations. On Everest, we did this gradually. Mm-hmm. We had the room to do so on K2 because of the risks. You just do one acclimatization one. rotation, yeah. summit rotation. So we try to go as far and as high up as we can on rotation one. Mm-hmm. And you just feel like your body is being hit by a truck over and over again. Because you're not acclimatized to these altitudes. Yeah. But you're just, you're like flooding your body with this kind of exposure. Mm. Obviously, within... You try to be as safe as you can. If you don't feel good, then you don't go higher. Yeah. So you have to keep checking in. We check our, you know, oxygen levels. But that summit, that acclimatization rotation is so important. It sets the foundation for what happens next. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And was, I guess, the acclimatization. <laughs> acclimatization. Summit, did everything go to plan for you in that first... So after the acclimatization, actually on the acclimatization, I got my period. That mm-hmm. was, I wasn't planning for that. Mm. Uh, I say that because it just makes everything harder. Mm, um, yeah. And I do, like, I do feel a lot of pain and I get a lot of cramps. Mm. Um, and and I'm just, like, so proud of women that do the sport. Yeah. Uh, I don't generally get my cycle on climbs. It stops. It stopped on Everest for mm-hmm. two months. But on K2, it came for eight days. It came... On one of the harder days, wow. moving up to camp two, I was in so much pain. Mm-hmm. So that was unexpected. But having overcome that, like having had my period, also having had a cold, we don't know if it was COVID, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and also having just recovered from food poisoning, I was like, if I can do this now, mentally, this is what I need to know, that I'll make it to the summit. Right. Mm-hmm. So then we come back down. We rested. Actually, we ended up staying at base camp for two weeks. That was something that was unexpected. Mm-hmm. We were planning on resting for five, six days because also when you rest on high altitude, you're losing a lot of muscle mass. Yeah. You're just resting. You can't do anything. You can't do strength training. And there's not much like we hike around base camp to stay a bit active. Mm -hmm. But you also have to be careful and cautious because there's a lot of crevasses in the glacier. Mm. So there's not much that we can do. We just sit and wait. And you just have to hope that you don't get sick. You don't lose a lot of fitness. You're obviously like on the edge of your seat. Just when are we going to move up? We don't know. So the weather changed. And that's Mm -hmm. why we had to stay for two weeks. Imagine being there for two weeks, just sitting, waiting for the weather to clear. And as soon as the weather started to clear, you have to, it's not just the weather clears. It's a small window, right? You have to make sure that there is a window for you to make it in time Mm -hmm. up. It takes a week for you to make it up and back down. Mm -hmm. So we found, you know, the window opened. And now you have to also consider the traffic. Everyone wants to take advantage of this window. window, Um, So that was like the unexpected bit. But you can't say it's unexpected. You know that these things happen on a mountain. I mean, you see everyone at base camp as well, right? Like everyone's kind of waiting. And everyone like kind of like so many people come to our team. Garrett Madison, the owner of the company, the leader of the company. Amazing. He Mm -hmm. is so good at what he does. Mm -hmm. Incredible leader. Um, And... Everyone just keeps coming to him. On Everest, the same thing would happen. Everyone wants to know when Garrett is moving up. Yeah. <laughs> because he has the most reliable, like, weather forecast. And, yeah, and he has, like, an incredible team of Sherpas as well. And G- Garrett's team, like, our team was the one that set the lines, like, the fix the lines right. on K2. So everyone was waiting for our team to do everything, actually. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, once the weather cleared, Garrett had a plan. We actually moved the day after most people had moved. Mm. But we still faced traffic. And the times that we would be moving was strategic because fine, there's traffic. Move a bit earlier or move a bit later. Mm -hmm. Mm. Because if people are moving up one, you can be obviously slowed down and you... I mean, slowing, being slowed down is a big factor. Mm. But then also rockfall. If there's someone above you and they roll rocks on mm. K2, this was a massive, massive like risk factor this year. Global warming and a lot of people. There's a lot of um, climber-induced rockfall. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of rockfall from, um, from global warming. So that is something that we had to factor in. What time do we move? And uh, the summit rotation was incredible. It was everything I wanted and more. Yeah. yeah. Were you like... You're like, I'm actually doing this when you're, you know, kind of going through those days, going yes. up to the camp. And I was thinking I'm ready. There's no other place I'm supposed to be. My body is ready. I'm ready. I mean, the day that we moved up from camp three to camp four, you rest at camp four for a couple of hours because you move to the summit at night. You mm. move to the summit at nine or 10 p.m. You start summiting at night. Yeah. So we get to camp four around like 11 a.m., 10 a.m., depending on how fast you move. Actually, you know, like around 12 p.m. And then you have to assemble, set everything up, set the tents, get ready, just prepare your gear before like sunset. And then you rest in your tent. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get any rest. I had so <laughs> much excitement. <laughs> but I'm like, you know what? It's okay because my body's ready. Mm -hmm. This is my body's doing what it needs to do to prepare me for one of the most difficult days physically for me in my life. So I'm going to allow my body to do what it does. Mm -hmm. Previously on climbs, I've, I've always faced this where I can't sleep before summit night. Mm -hmm. And I'd be so upset with myself. And why can't I sleep? And why can't I rest? I'm so anxious. Uh, no, now I've learned, allow your body to do what it needs to do. Mm -hmm. If your body is prepared from now, it's okay. Mm -hmm. And so I just sat, I ate a lot. I ate <laughs> a whole jar of peanut butter. It's so good. <laughs> and then, I, yeah, and then I had a lot of nuts from Batil. Batil is one of my sponsors. Yeah. The best sponsors I can ask Love for. Love shout out to Batil. Yeah, yeah. Batil, Gourmet, you guys are the best. So I had dates, I had nuts, I had peanut butter from Biotic, another yeah. one of my in-kind sponsors. They, like, provided me with a lot of the snacks. Um, and then I also, and then I had my chips. And I'm like, don't tap into your chips. <laughs> that is that my is reward for coming back. Right. And you have to do that. You have to prepare. I mean, that's how you train yourself mentally. Like, I wanted to look forward to something coming back. Mm. So I, I, honestly, I just had one chip. And then I left it. And then <laughs> Motivation. Yeah, just one chip. And I'm so glad because, like, when we came back down, yeah, that day is so difficult, so long. So you don't rest from camp three to camp four. You just sit in your tent, but then you go from camp four. I found the summit to be quite difficult and challenging. I thought that was one of the most challenging days, mm -hmm. contrary to what I heard. And because there was traffic and there was, I was just scared. I mm -hmm. was scared. You have the Serac. Mm -hmm. You're moving on a traverse. It's so narrow. Mm -hmm. And we were literally moving. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a lot of people that had started before us. We cut through so much traffic. Mm. It exhausts you to cut through traffic because you have to clip around them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're already out of breath. Uh, I mean... It's just, you're in the death zone. Yeah. Mm. Um, and I was moving super fast. Mm. I was so happy with how fast I was moving. But then it got to a point where I was like, adrenaline is so high. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm scared for what's to come. I'm aware that we have to come back down with all these people that are behind us now. And then we got to a point where we're actually just moving right behind the, the fixing team, the rope fixing mm -hmm. team. They're still fixing the lines, which is, you know, our team. And yeah, it was just such a long day. I mean, after the summit, you have to come back down. Coming back down took us a long time because we were stuck in traffic. Once we came back down to Camp 4, we only rested for a bit. We packed up our stuff. I had my chips. Yeah. <laughs> Changed. I was drenched in sweat in my summit suit. I was drenched. I had, man, I was, I was so dehydrated. Then we had to go back down to Camp 3. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't end there. And we were thinking, well, you know what? We want to be ahead of everyone. We're going to move back down to Camp 2. Because tomorrow, everyone's going to move back down right. to Camp 2. So we moved back down to Camp 2. Imagine, what a long day. Like, mm. what a long day on this altitude. So at Camp 2, we wanted to move back down to base camp, mm. base camp, which we could have done. But I just felt like, guys, I told Ang Porba, who was um, the guy that I was working with, incredible, incredible team leader, and Teray, uh, our Western guides, I was like, guys, I think we should rest here. Let's eat. Mm. So tomorrow we move back down slow, slowly, carefully. We're not rushed because now we're rushed. It was like almost sunset mm -hmm. and we would have gotten down to base camp at night. They're like, fine. So we just set up a tent. Literally, it took off my shoes, got in, opened my sleeping bag. That's all I had with me. Mm -hmm. Got into my sleeping bag. Poor Ba zipped me up. Slept. Knocked out. Knocked out. All three of us knocked out in the tent. We woke up around 5 a.m. and we're like, let's move. And that's when I tripped. 
Sangra, I have an injury till now. Oh, wow. I tripped over my tent and I I landed on ice and I ended up injuring my meniscus. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, which I'm still dealing with. But anyways, and uh, so that chips, that chips <laughs> meant so much to me. And then I came back then and I had more chips. <laughs> you talk about fear, which is a very, very powerful emotion. It's also an emotion which I believe propels you forward. But in that moment when fear grips you, I was listening to a podcast where someone was talking about self-talk and telling fear, not now, like not now, and then moving forward. Do you have any coping mechanisms when you are gripped with fear, but you also know that you have to move forward? Of course, uh, I pray. Mm. I know that Allah will never leave us. Allah is always by our side. And my faith has, um, I have to say, like my relation, my spirituality has increased after my dad passed away. Faith really anchored me. Faith gave me so much more hope and light in a very dark stage in my life and a very difficult stage in my life. Actually, after losing my dad, I feel like I lost fear as well. Like my, I lost, the fear lost its power over Mm. me. Um, I've become a lot more fearless and my faith has gotten stronger. So on K2, when, you know, there's a lot of moments where, yeah, I was overwhelmed by how scary things were and how risky things were and we had to move fast because there's a storm i would pray i would just keep reciting uh god never leaves us and i would just recite some like you know prayers from the quran and that would keep me just calm it would it would just give me a feeling of calm and peace and i know that nothing will happen everything will be okay that that would be it on i guess spirituality and i you know I think it's a theme with a lot of athletes that we speak to. The journey is so important. And you just, you know, we're talking about going up to the summit. We didn't actually, you didn't actually mention what it was like at the top. (laughs) That moment when you reached the summit, you know, what was that like? Was that, you know, what were you, what was going through your mind? What time did you summit? What, tell us through, like, when you reach the very, very top. We summited at 3.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we started at around, I think, 10 p.m., mm-hmm. hoping to get there at 6 or 7 a.m. Got there at 3.30 in the morning. We got there super early. Uh, we were just like, literally, at, at the beginning, I mean, we had about 60 people maybe plus mm-hmm. in front of us, and we just cut through so many people, and it helped that we were such a small team. I actually lost my guide and my two guides in the process for an hour and a half. <laughs> And they were super upset, needless yeah. to say, when we got to the traverse, which was super narrow. And I'm like, thank God I saw you guys. Thank God you're here. This is like the scariest bit. Um, there was a, I have to say before the summit, there was a section, the blue ice section. I never climbed on ice before, so I mm-hmm. didn't know what to do. That was when I had to learn. I had a full-blown panic attack, kept slipping off the ice. Mm-hmm. Almost, like I swung off the wall, almost fell into a crevasse. It was horrible. I felt like this is the moment I'm probably going to die. Mm-hmm. I had a full-blown panic attack. I haven't had one in like, I mean, I had several on K2, but before then I hadn't had my panic attacks for 10 years. I just had to breathe, center myself, and then I continued. On the summit, I have to say it was relief. I couldn't believe that the moment I was waiting for had happened. I summited. I made history for the Arab region. As I was on my way to K2, I was just thinking, yeah, like I was thinking of my dad, and I felt like my dad's energy was with me. I Mm -hmm. felt so strong that day. It was like... I've never felt a sense of flow like I had on the way to the summit. I was just on a mission. And then as we got closer, I'm like, this is not about me anymore. This is for my family. I know how much they want to see me succeed. And so I'm going to do this for my family, for my mom and my sisters that are going through so much stress right now. I'm going to be the first Lebanese woman to do this for them. And then at some point I realized, no, I'm, I'm going to be the first Arab woman to do so. This is for my country, not for my country. This is for the Arab region for yeah all Arab women. And it was such an empowering, such an incredible feeling. So when I got to the summit, I dropped everything like I had visualized. And then I cried for about 30 minutes. I couldn't stop crying, just <laughs> tears of joy, especially like thinking of my dad, how, how proud he would be of this very moment. Um, yeah, it was, it was just like a moment of ecstasy, euphoria. It's hard to describe. I was so happy. So happy. I knew, I knew like we still have to go down. 
the yeah. hardest part. <laughs> really the hardest part. Yeah. But I was like, I'm going to have my moment. We stayed one hour on the summit. Wow. We spent one hour before anyone else That's kind of unusual, isn't it, to stay yeah. that long? Yeah. yeah. before like Especially before the rest of the people started to mm. show up. And we were there with Christine, uh, Kristen Harila, who's now attempting uh, to break Nims's record mm. on the 14 Peaks. It was with her, another Kristen, Chris Lee, my teammate. Mm. And it was just amazing because we all actually used to meet up quite often at base camp. So mm. it felt like... Ah, Gangs back together. Yeah, (laughs) like, you know, these women inspire me so much. I am with the women that inspire me so much on this mission. And it was amazing because all our guides, like, we had a lot of guides. So we were such a small team, and some of our team members didn't end up making it to the summit. But our guides, our, like, remaining guides wanted to still come. So we got to share this with the entire team, which doesn't usually happen on Everest. Like, many of the climbers showed up at different times. And having that moment with everyone was just like better than anything I've imagined. And the weather was great. We were so lucky. There was no wind. And then we made it back down. Coming back down, I got to see my dear friend, Navira, who became the first Omani to climb K2. And I was so happy to see her there, to hug her. We spent like 15 minutes. There, like there was that moment of we were stuck in traffic. We had to wait for people to move up. And also she was taking a break. Yeah. And yeah, I got to see my other fellow Arab climbers, Fahed, incredibly um, inspiring. He lost his fingers to frostbite, some of his fingers, and he was so strong on this climb. Saeed, first Emirati, Asma, first Qatari. It was just amazing to share this with them. Like, I love that. Yeah. yeah. So it's, nice. Yeah. It's amazing. Getting goosebumps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm so proud. So proud of everyone, honestly. Yeah. As passionate as you are about mountain, mountaineering, you are even more so about the environment and your own footprint and, you know, the footprint that climbers leave behind when they're outdoors, right? Nims, who we've spoken about quite a bit in this conversation of ours, when he was at K2, and he said when he kind of went to Camp 2, I believe, he had he threw up because of all the garbage and the rubbish that people had left behind. What was your experience? Did you see something similar like that? And, you know, what is the footprint that climbers leave behind and how can they offset it? Oh, yeah. K2, unfortunately, it's such a beautiful mountain range and it's so contaminated. It's And you don't have that many climbers going up on k2 every year in comparison to other more commercial um mountain ranges but it's not managed properly i'd Mm. say um there's a lot of garbage so much garbage especially the higher you go camp one smelled like urine before you even step foot into camp one it smells like feces and urine it's horrible and then just imagine this is the beginning of the season towards the end of the season so many damaged and destroyed tents people left the tents left everything there Mm. and then you move up to camp two camp two is even worse because there's so many remains of tents from like the previous years lots and lots of feces and pee going into my tent on camp two i remember i was like you have to be very careful navigating on camp Mm. two because it's like on the cliff and it's at an angle like you can actually slip off so you have to stay in your tents and you when you're moving you have to clip onto the lines so i was like coming into my tent into the vestibule and I was just sitting and I was so happy and I smell poo I'm like where's the poo coming from I smell my hands and my hands smelled like poo turns out I smeared poo on the way coming into my tent there was poo like someone had pooed in the vestibule area Uh, and it was all over my boots it's disgusting it's disgusting and there's oxygen bottles socks I just don't understand like if, if you can make it this far can't you you can't bring your own things back down. Mm. I understand that sometimes things happen that are mm. unexpected. I know that a lot of climbers go up with the intention of bringing everything back down, but that's not the case. That doesn't always happen. And I feel like tour operators need to make more of an effort to make sure that the teams bring everything back down, mm-hmm. the climbers and the guides. And then also like governmental entities need to have regulations in place for the mountain, you know, like, checking in every everyone's gear and their items making sure that everyone brings back everything that's what happens at least in in uh, in alaska on denali we had mm-hmm. to check in everything and check everything back out um and it's it's sad it is it's really dirty it's really dirty up there just like everest on uh, on, on camp yeah. four um but k2 is even dirtier and that's why most of us got food poisoning all the way up to base mm-hmm. camp Cross contamination. Yeah, and I don't. We don't know if people are pooing and peeing in the, in like you know the water that we're drinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, what's next for you? 
Ah, that question. <laughs> Just come back down. What's next for you? Let me breathe. Let me rest. Um, what's next for me? Actually, I've taken the executive decision to take a break from climbing for mm-hmm. now. Um, it's just been climb after climb after yeah, climb. Yeah, and it was a big climb. Yeah, and last year was a big year. I mean, Amadabla, mm-hmm. um, K2, Matterhorn, uh, Brighthorn Traverse, and then, you know, like climbing all across the region. So I want to take a break to focus on other areas in my life, mm-hmm. uh, namely my work. So I'm doing that for now. If I do have the chance to climb this year, of course I'll climb. I would love to climb. I'd love to climb another 8,000 meter peak, but that's not the priority for now. Right, right. right. Our final question to you, because climbing K2 requires a tremendous amount of grit. Would you say that's innate in you or have you learned it along the way over the years? You build it. Mm-hmm. You build it along the way over the years um, through what you do, through your lifestyle through the times that you wanted to give up and you don't give up, through your life experiences, also through the people that you surround yourself with. Um, everything, just everything. Um, so the books I read, the podcasts I listen to, the movies I watch, they all inspire me. I don't want to waste my time and energy on things that bring me down. Mm-hmm. I actually don't like to watch movies that weigh me down. So, um, And I don't watch that many movies for that reason. Um, and so I think it's just everything I choose to put into my life and the way I respond to life experiences has helped me get to that point. It's through life, life. I love that. Well, you said earlier that your family's proud of you. We're proud of We're you. We're proud of you, yeah. <laughs> can, I, can I give a shout out to my... 100%. Yeah. 100%. I would like to give a shout out to my sponsors and the brands that supported me along the way. Bettine, you guys are the best. The best dates, the best premium dates in the region, actually in the world. I couldn't go. In the I world. I agree. I love, I love Batil. We love Batil. Yeah. And you Big know what's Batille funny? I, t- I took so many cartons of Batil products and I was thinking, this is too much on the climb. Wasn't it? It wasn't. Oh <laughs> my God. Everyone Food's like... never enough. Yeah. People started to come to me from different teams knowing that Nelly has the good stuff. And I'm like, guys, you know, like there's only so much I can hand out. You became a dealer on K2. Yeah, a dealer of dates and nuts. And like, they're, they're, yeah, I have their chocolate. They also customize crackers for me. And then yes, the Yes, theory. They're my family. Mm-hmm. Um, they came into my life in just the most amazing way, and it's because I trusted the process. I'm so happy that they came into my life. And yes, theory is yes, theory. A bunch of adventurers. Um, they have a very inspiring YouTube channel, mm-hmm. and they have a brand called Seek Discomfort. It's clothing. It's just items with like the brand Seek Discomfort. They encourage people to go seek discomfort. Love it. And travel. So they sponsored my climb as well. And yeah, it's I'm, I'm just grateful for everyone that came that that supported me on this climb. Mike, my family, Garrett, Purba, all my friends, and you guys for having me today. <laughs> oh no, thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. Yeah, it was excellent. Thank you Absolutely. so much for joining us. Thank you, thank Nelly. You, thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, we ask that you please share it with family, teammates, friends, and even frenemies, or share via social media. Please also leave us a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Five stars only. And visit us on themetalset.com for more stories and resources. Thanks again for listening. Your support means the world to us. This is The Metal Set.